0: Welcome to The Futurist with your hosts, Ben Rohde and Alex Lightman. Each week, we feature a specific aspect of our collective future with action steps you can take to make your own future better and brighter. Our guest experts are top futurists in their field who will remind you that anything is possible. Give us 90 minutes and we'll give you the future. Good morning, geniuses. Um, is it a is it a bad thing to call somebody a genius or to even claim to be a genius for yourself? I'm just I'm I, I'm wondering and I'll I'll tell you why. but uh, I, I posted a couple posts about face uh, on Facebook about enlightenment and uh, would you call yourself an enlightened being? And it seemed to have triggered a lot of people's uh, stuff and their their own views on what enlightenment is. So I figured we better have this this conversation about it. And I just I think it's funny that people have so much about being able to say I'm enlightened, I'm an enlightened being, or somebody else is enlightened, as though it was a um you know a horrible thing or this narcissistic thing or a class thing, or I'm better than you thing. And, you know, I'd like to discuss all of this and the future moving forward, because this is, this is big. One thing we always talk about is whatever uh, freaks people out, whatever freaks you out, whatever your resistance is, is, is where the growth is and what we can move towards. And, I'd like to talk about this discussion as though saying I'm enlightened would be the same as saying uh, I'm intelligent, or I'm, you know, I'm uh, I, I love my wife, or I'm hungry, or, you know, I'm a white person, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is going to be a fun conversation, and 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 I'll, I think even more importantly, is talking about why this is necessary right now for people to find their enlightenment so we're just we're in a place right now where nobody can seem to figure themselves out and everybody's taking uh direction from everybody else and it's just it's it's been it's been uh people people don't know which way to turn right now so anyway what are your thoughts alex lightman
1: Oh, well, that's that's uh, Ben Rohde, who is just speaking. I'm Alex Lightman. Hello. The show is The Quest for Spiritual Truth, and uh, the future of The Quest for Spiritual Truth. And I guess we could start with what our own uh, journeys have been in s- searching for spiritual truth. Um, I went to Catholic schools as a child. I went to Blessed Sacrament in Alexandria, Virginia, uh, where the, the we had... A surprising number of books that we read were fantastic literature, like uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and uh, Hmm. uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and things. So I learned my love of fiction at a Catholic school, and I thought that was actually pretty useful because uh, much of what is in the Old Testament and the New Testament is fiction. Uh, In the beginning, there were... Thousands of gospels and various groups and councils, what we would call advisory councils now, uh, or boards of editors, determined which ones would be there. But it's not unlike the editors at Marvel Comics right now, who have to occasionally (laughs) do a reboot of the whole universe. Or in DC, they had Flashpoint and the new 52, where they changed the origin stories to update them and make them fresh. And so you make something that's just fantastic enough with just enough miracles, changing water to wine, uh, multiplying the fishes and the the loaves of bread, walking on water, resurrecting the dead, healing the lame, you know, just enough to be magical. And that's sort of the secret of the Song of Fire and Ice, the Game of Thrones. It's just enough magic. You know, there's some dragons and there's some some basically zombies, ice zombies, um, the White Walkers and but you know most of it seems grounded in reality so 10% magic 90% things people can relate to seems to be the good way of making fiction that people can um can rally around but i think that ultimately we find that what what we're told by our parents we're told at least in the united states about the easter bunny and especially the lie of santa claus and when you hear about that i don't know about other people but when i heard about uh, that Santa Claus wasn't real. I thought, okay, well, how many other things that you're telling me are true are not real? And I never really believed that one guy would go to all these chimneys. It just seemed to be nonsensical. And I remember getting into arguments and seeing adults like really, really trying hard to do it. And I thought, oh my God, that's these guys are actually really trying to fool me. Like, what's the deal here? Um, and I and I think it all came to a head one day when I was in Reston, Virginia at Lake End Elementary School in a class with John Tazi, that was my teacher. So I remember this all very clearly. And we had done this a new kind of anthropology unit. And there was a question on a test that said, which of these animals may never see a tree in his whole life? And the you know, they had uh, chimpanzee, gorilla, you know, human, all these kind of things. And basically, the answer was supposed to be human, like a human in a city wouldn't see a tree. And I just said, that's impossible. There is no city without a tree, you know. But you could have a chimpanzee that was there for medical experiments. Remember, This was the fifth grade who never right. saw a tree because he was in a lab because only humans would be so cruel as to keep something, you know, without a tree its whole life. And so wow. when people were arguing to me about that, and this was a national test, and I said, so you're actually – going and talking to hundreds of thousands of kids and telling them this lie and telling them they're wrong. And at that point, I thought, okay, I can't believe what people say. I have to go determine it for myself. Yes. So with respect to the Bible and the and the story of Jesus, I went to Israel and I went to the holy sites and I walked them and I compared what was in the Bible to what's there, just like with the the Boston Marathon bombing. I went there to the site with a tape measure and actually, like, walked the site to see what was true and what's not. And I'll just give you one piece of data on, on cool. that. One of the bombs went off right outside the window, the giant window of a candy store. And I said, oh, did you replace the window? And the person working in the candy store said, no, why would we replace the window? So supposedly a bomb goes out outside a window that's about 10 feet high and 12 feet across – and it doesn't even have a crack in it, that's pretty funny. So, uh, you know, you have to go and walk things and look at them for yourself, because what you hear may or may not be the truth. And my determination, and it's not the same as other people's, but um, is that uh, Jesus Christ was a myth, that he didn't actually exist, and he's a composite of multiple myths. And that's from me walking on the ground and seeing what's there, seeing what was said, and the only evidence that we have is something in Josephus that was written in 70 a d and so I have a book who wrote a, uh, uh, sorry, I have a friend who wrote a whole book. Funny enough, he worked for the NSA, the national security agency he was a Russian translator uh, expert, and he had the same quest and he went and made a story about what would happen if you were in 70 a d and you went out looking for the historical evidence and you would come. To that conclusion. So, most people I know who've looked carefully and objectively for the truth realize that it's, it's a story. And so I wonder, but it's a story that reaches to 1.7 billion people. And I, um, I think that Buddha was a myth at Lao Tzu of, of the Tao Te Ching. Um, these are composite stories, but the, the narrative is more con- uh, coherent. The narrative frame, if you have a person who, through which the story is told, especially if this person has, you know, magical powers, the gift of prophecy, or other things. So effectively, what we have is the religion is uh, these are superhero tales. These are these are very much like Spider-Man, Batman, Superman are today, and I have no doubt, but that hundreds of years or thousands of years from now, assuming that humans survive in something like the form we have that we will look upon these as being religious beliefs and claims of people who, who lived at this day. I mean, that's just how these things go. So um, I, you know that's part of it. And then within that, I went and traveled to India and lived in various ashrams and saw Westerners coming there, kind of like looking for a spiritual cafeteria. Um, I lived in the Osho commune in Indian Pune and in the papaji uh, community in lucknow india papaji is the person who is the inspiration for the magazine what is enlightenment and i had an experience that uh that i i take it i hold it in my consciousness as it was an enlightenment experience so i remember what i was before then and then i remember that experience and then i remember what came afterwards and i'll, I'll i guess i'll talk about that later because i've been on a roll here so Ben, what what has been your what have been your motivations for your search for truth? Like what set you off on this path? You were, um, you you are one of the most open-minded people that I know. Uh, you you know you embrace you, you look for conversations with people. You look for things uh, conversations, but at the same time you're very very clear and confident, and grounded in your own truth that comes to you from inside and from your wife, Jen. How, where did, how did, how did your quest for spiritual truth come about?
0: Great question. Thank you. And I I loved your story and it's, it it really sets the the tone for what we'll be talking about in the, about the future of enlightenment because it's, it's clear what the past has been. And so it's going to be fun talking about the future quest. So it came to me in, I was, I was also, I was indoctrinated into Christianity I went to christian school uh, my wife also my wife went to Catholic school, so I was told that God was real, Jesus was real, and gay people were bad and so i at some point uh oh i was I was engaged actually I was engaged to a woman named Brittany, and I think I was about twenty three and she said. She said, "How how can how can being gay be wrong?" She said, "What if what if you were told that you weren't allowed to love me?" And I was like, "Well, I'd say I'd say fuck you. I'm <laughs> I'm gonna I'm supposed to love this person." She said, "Exactly." And so she she broke my brain at that point, and and that was really where I started questioning everything. So until then, from the time I was 17, I was looking for growth. I was looking for information. I was looking for more and more and more. That was the point where I started questioning everything I had ever known. And I had learned a lot at that point. And so I, I completely switched. I went to the opposite end of the polarity of, uh, okay, now there there's all of a sudden no God, no religion, everything I know, everything I've ever known is, has been a lie. And I'll start from there. And so I read every book on, um, uh, atheism. I read all of Dawkins' books. I read, I, I read, I read probably fifty books on uh, actually pro Christianity and uh, against God, like the case for God by by all the scientists that you know, all the three scientists that wrote a book on why God exists. And I also read the you know every book from every anthropologist about. The evolution and, and everything else. And, and so I rejected everything that I had known. And so, and this is kind of, this has kind of been the way that I've done things is, is swinging from one polarity to the other and finding my middle path through that, right? Looking for every opinion at, at both ends of the spectrum and finding that there's truth and lies in each end of, the, of each polarity and that it's and, and, and that it's not about each end of the polarity. It's about what the fingers are pointing to. What each end is pointing to is the middle path, right? But in order to find those truths, you have to find the truths in everything else and also uh, what's false in everything else. And so that's kind of been my journey is pushing the limits and, and, and breaking the ceilings and the walls of the matrix and and so at this point, I feel like I have a really good understanding of when somebody comes at me with an opinion or when I see somebody with an opinion, I can usually see three or four ways around that opinion. So it's just like seeing the bigger picture and knowing that there are no absolute truths and, you know, whether whether or not that's an absolute truth or not, like it, it gets tricky, you know, and so being so, I, I found a, I found it to be really fun and interesting. Just being
1: comfortable. Hello, Ben. In, uh, some, oh, ben is in Costa Rica, and sometimes he goes offline, so I presume he'll be back oh, in yeah. a second. Um, so oh, yeah. the, quest, the the show title is The Future of the Quest for Spiritual Truth. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about the past, and now the present, and then the future. And the in looking for spiritual truths, I think that we have to have evidence that these are true, that they're useful. Um, uh, Keith said on an ode to a, on a Grecian urn, truth is beauty and beauty truth. That is all you need to know. And I think that ultimately I, I look at people in California, New Mexico, Arizona, and Sedona. I, I see a big difference in the people who have looked, who have invested a big portion of their lives looking to understand the nature of reality, looking to understand what happens to us after we die, whether spiritual healing is possible, people who connect um with with various things and there are so many different paths. There's the path of religion and within and within religion of course there's the the major denominations and um and there's shamanism, looking for spiritual truths within the natural world, within the rocks and the trees and the ground. Um, there's druidism, which also connects with, with trees, with animals. Uh, there uh, is zen, where you're trying to have no mind and have questions that you show the limits of, of language. Um, Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein in Tractatus Logicus said that the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And there was, uh, there's a movie called Arrival, which is based on a, a short story called The Story of Your Life, uh, about the, how the limits of our language can change um, our our perception. And once we learn a new language, it can give us superpowers. So, spoiler alert, this is in the movie, but the, in the movie, learning a new alien language is a gift. The alien's... Um, have their language and it allows them to see the future and they know that they'll need the help of humanity in 3,000 years. And so their gift to us is their language because for some reason, even if we learn the language, we're able to predict the future. So we're able to uh, to to see what what's happening in the future and know how to do it. And in the show, the woman who learns the language learns enough that she sees the future of herself writing a book about the language itself and is able to then understand the language. So she's able to go forward. I think that that's a very good metaphor for the future of the search for spiritual truth, that ultimately we are going to have knowledge that will then unlock other knowledge. And particularly, I think that of all the superpowers that that come with spirituality, that there are two in particular that will become... The sort of the signs, like um, there's a saying that if you can't measure something, you can't manage it. I, I personally believe that the appearance of superpowers or some special abilities uh, goes along with somebody having stumbled upon real spiritual truths. And one of those superpowers is the gift of prophecy, the other is the, uh, or clairvoyance, um, and, uh, and along with that, basically clear seeing. Uh, So that you can know what's going to happen in your own life in the future. Or um, the second one is clairvoyance, the ability to see at a distance. I think that ultimately, that remote viewing and that um, that ability, basically, the ability to see uh, anywhere that you choose to put your consciousness, and like non-local viewing, and also the ability to see the future. That these things are both. Uh, signs of someone having come come across spiritual truths. Um, I know a number of people who can do aspects of uh, remote viewing, and I know people who can uh, see aspects of the future. Um, I I like to think that I've come across some of the truths because I'm very good at seeing the future. I've seen uh, I've have 30 years of making predictions about things in writing that have come true. So this year, for instance, I predicted um, Brexit, that the, UK, that the people of the United Kingdom would vote to exit the European Union, and predicted the electoral victory of Donald Trump. And that's not with probabilities like, oh, it's a 80% chance or whatever. It's like saying this is going to happen. Um, I think that it, another power that comes with uh, uncovering spiritual truth is something like um, it's sort of half empathy half telepathy the ability to know what somebody is thinking and or feeling um, my father had this ability i remember him he would go to places and he would tune in to somebody and then tell them what they had for breakfast it was kind of like a parlor trick oh, wow. like he, that was his way of practicing empathy um wow. within uh, and uh, someone named jordan greenhall um, who's a member of Neurohacker Collective? Our last show had Daniel uh, Schmachtenberger on. He's also a, a member of Neurohacker Collective and uh, Jordan Greenhall said that if you didn't predict the election that you if you didn't get it right, that there was something about your sense making um, apparatus that was broken, and that same sense making apparatus could, um, was not going to be able to help you figure it out. So you had to take some time and, and develop a new way of thinking, a new way of making sense Good. of things. And I think that Accurate. ultimately that that spirit, that if you believe in something as religion or spirituality that doesn't confer any greater awareness than you have or that the average person, uh, non, non-religious non person has, that you haven't actually stumbled upon the kind of truth that unlocks these powers. So uh, what I find is that people who are really in touch with spirituality are deeply in touch with their own bodies, that they uh, respect and revere their bodies because they recognize that they have a soul, that they recognize they have a spirit, and that the body is something that it's almost like a temple that they've chosen to, uh, to dwell within, and they take care of it through exercise, through eating well. And so everything becomes almost like a, a prayer or a sacrament. And you think about food as being something that gives you energy, that gives you good energy and makes you feel, uh, as though you're taking care of, of this temple. And the idea is if you take care of this temple during life, um, that then you will have it, uh, the ability to have another body in another lifetime. Um, and this is one of those things that we all have to come to in our own searches, is whether you think that you come back again um, in another body, that your spirit finds another body and comes back, or you think that you go to heaven or hell. And I think in my own experience that uh, I believe that more and more people, or even in the West, even in the, in the Christian tradition, will come to believe in reincarnation, because it's a very useful philosophy. It's very useful to think about reincarnation because you think about, well, what am I here to do? I chose this body, I chose these parents to learn certain kinds of lessons. So what what are those lessons that I'm here to learn? And then when you do that and you figure, okay, I, I now have a purpose, I now have a reason for being in this body this time. And you also think about what are the choices you make. Um, yeah, a good. kind of interesting sort of uh, parallel to spirituality is transhumanism, and transhumanism is based on humanism. It's, the idea is that you don't need uh, a god. That that powers don't aren't conferred by gods. That basically people make choices, and they you know they make their own choices in the absence of god or gods. But uh, transhumanism has a, a fundamentally an assumption that you own your own body, that you have the right to upgrade your body, that you have the right to seek powers or superpowers, that you have the right to try to extend your life, to have radical life extension, that you, in fact, are, it's okay to seek immortality. It's okay to plan on scanning your brain, basically doing a copy of your brain, and then change what will that version of you it won't be exactly the same you because you there's no way to copy the spirit or the soul if it, that exists at least not with computer technology and to put that and make your your existence be um the phrase is kind of interesting substrate independence so uh, independent so your body is a substrate is a computational substrate on which your your thinking takes place your your existence takes place um, and then the idea is that you can, we can find a way to replicate that or transfer that, and then once we get to that, so if we could have a complete non-destructive or destructive brain scan that copied the brain, we could put that into a robot, and then we could transfer that from body to body. Um, the best fictional depiction I know of this is Ghost in the Shell, uh, in particular, uh, solid-state society. So in solid-state society, um, the major, uh, who has a full-body prosthetic, so she basically, her whole entire body is a prosthetic, actually has many bodies, and her, her, she has replicated consciousness that are going out and, and going and doing things without her awareness. So she has multiple instances of herself in the world. And this, this gets to the idea of who are you if you can be replicated how you know your your uniqueness becomes a little bit less unique if if you can be replicated, and also if you're cloned, to what extent can um, is that you? And there are people out there, including people with billions of dollars in Silicon Valley whose whose um, search for spiritual truth has them looking to create a biological substrate out of their own cells, so effectively a clone. Uh, to copy their brain, and then to do these kind of uh, rituals, this uh, Buddhist rituals involving the silver thread. So it's a way of transferring the consciousness. Um, Kadampa Buddhism uh, is a, um, a sect with which I guess has about 150,000 or so practitioners. They do festivals, and they uh, they have many trainings. And one of their trainings is the ability to transfer consciousness out of your body. So supposedly somebody um, was uh, dying and he transferred his consciousness into a bird and then that was transferred finally to a body of somebody who had died but the body could be resurrected. Now, I'm not saying this is real. I'm just saying that this is uh, this is basically their their idea of why you should study it and if you get really good at it, you can defy death by transferring your consciousness to body to body. So remember, the, the wow. show title is The Future of the Quest for Spiritual Truth. So are these things true? Well, I don't know, but this show is about the quest. So people, are, people are, trying, are, are looking into these things and wondering how to do it. There's another whole uh, quest for spiritual truth where people are asking the question of whether this is heaven, so there there are some people, and, and I am among them, who think that this actually is heaven, that heaven and hell both exist side by side. And they're metaphors, but they exist right here. So you can live your life in such a way that it's heaven, that you get pleasure every day. I actually have a friend who says very often when she's happy, well, this, this is heaven. I'm in heaven. So uh, we were at Burning Man together, and she said, you know, wow, this is heaven. She thought that was heaven. And... Uh, there are other people whose lives are living hell. Um, when I ask people about questions about their lives, I get um, about one-third of people who think this is the material world and, and about one-third who think that it's that it's a hell realm and about a third who think it's heaven. And I don't know why we don't talk more about that, but to the extent that you believe that this is heaven and you act as if it's heaven, then you're going to have a different experience than people who believe that it's hell. So to a great extent, the quest for uh, spiritual truth will also have to do with uh, cognitive bias and Dunning-Kruger effect and things. So one of the things about reading about heaven and learning about uh, self-actualization and learning about the power of positive thinking, uh, learning about self-fulfilling prophecies, about self preventing prophecies what it all comes down to is that to a limited extent your thoughts create your reality uh in the short term but over the longer term the the longer the term the more that you have a chance to think about it the more things become you know, the more your thoughts become reality um by the way let me just check in here ben are you on the call can you hear me are you there? You can't hear okay, still? so this is actually the longest that uh, my co-host Ben Brody sure. has not been on the line. Um, it's a kind of a kind of a funny feeling. Um, I wish that Costa Rica's internet worked a little bit more reliably. So, um, okay, another quest for spiritual truth comes from being able to uh, experience this empathy and this telepathy, and in the game. Um, World of Warcraft, the newest version, Legion, is basically about creatures from, uh, from a hell realm um, who are coming, they look like demons, uh, coming to the planet in the game, which is Azeroth. And while that's all happening, there's uh, a, a, an insurrection. Part of the game is it takes place with dealing with two of the biggest issues that we deal with, that where the spiritual world hits the material world, and that issue yes, is yes. corruption an abusive power by government, and addiction. So in the Suramar, S-U-R-A-M-A-R, campaign, uh, you come across a realm that is supposedly 10,000 years, uh, where where for the for 10,000 years previously, there was a bubble, there was a dome over blocking Alex? out both the sun and the moon, and the people were drinking uh, what they call arc wine from a well.
0: The well uh,
1: it sustained them, and it kept them oh, alive, God, but they, need they, need were addicts. They, were, uh, they were addicted to this, um, this night well. And now the dome has come down need. and they're consorting with demons and they're, the ruler is selling people off to the demons. But the basic idea is that you have to find a way of taking the people who are addicted to this and get them off of their addiction. And so the whole campaign is about how you're exploring and how you find something to get them free of their addiction. And at the same time, get them free of the oppression and the, and the government that is making deals with demons. And so to some extent, this uh, where the future of the quest for spiritual truth goes is having people question the legitimacy of their government. Like, is this a moral government? And I think that there are more and more people questioning more and more aspects of the United States government and of of other governments. But Since I'm an American, I'll stick with the U.S. government. And so just as I said earlier that I had this kind of moment of awakening uh, when I saw that that children were being told that human beings could live their whole lives without seeing a tree, which I just simply didn't accept or believe, um, I I had my own experience by looking into the U.S. embargo of Cuba. And this is actually – this may sound very political, but it's actually – Uh, part of the spiritual quest for truth. So the United States says, well, we have the embargo in Cuba because we want to make them a democracy. And I heard uh, with the death of Fidel Castro the other day, uh, I heard many people talking about Castro was good, Castro was bad. But the U.S. embargo is in place. Um, President Obama um, has signed it into law by executive order, Uh, in September of 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, 2015, and 2016. Uh, So he signed it into law every year that he was in office for another year by executive order. At any given time, he could have signed an executive order doing what he did a few weeks ago, which is to say it should end. So what is this embargo of Cuba? Well, for one thing, it is we've changed the goalposts and said th- what the reason was uh, more than than four times, and it depends on how many different things you look at. But fundamentally, we keep changing the supposed.
0: Okay, so I just uh, kicked Alex off, so he can call back and unmute me. Uh, my internet's been working really well the whole time. <laughs> I think he just muted muted the line, so he couldn't hear me talking. Anyway. Uh, he'll call back, and then we'll, we'll have a conversation again. Until then, I've got a lot to say. This is such a fun conversation for me. I don't know how we ended up talking about Cuba, but I'm sure he was going somewhere with that. So here's, here's what I've noticed, is that everybody has their own opinion about what enlightenment is. Everybody has their own opinion, and they think that their opinion is truth. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just look at my most recent Facebook post that has hundreds of comments on it about enlightenment. It's, it's the post that says, are you an enlightened master? And it was really triggering for people. And it's interesting to notice what triggers people and then to kind of try to understand why. So in understanding why, you have to actually kind of know the people or at least pick apart what they're saying. Okay. So Alex, are you back? Can you hear
1: me? Yes, I'm back. Oh, hi. Did you go on when I went off?
0: Uh, No, I was on the whole time. You just had me on mute. So I I just cut your line. So you'd call me back.
1: Oh, okay. I didn't, I don't even know how to put you on mute. Oh, I I don't know. Okay. Hello. Welcome uh, back.
0: Hey, we're back. (laughs) So anyway, I'm talking about, I'm talking about my, my Facebook post. Um, And, and so, okay what what i what i really uh what i really am understanding is that there's no one definition of enlightenment there's no one definition and you could even you could probably get five people that most would consider enlightened masters or at least their disciples their followers would say he's an enlightened master or she's an enlightened master. And you could probably get one of them in a room and they may not even be able to come up with a, 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 a single definition. It would still most likely be a subjective experience. And so what my thoughts have been is that enlightenment is a subjective experience. And so for somebody searching, somebody on this quest for spirituality, one thing they can do is find somebody that resonates with them. People look to us for truth. We don't have truths. We don't have absolute truths. We have something that may appear to be true in the moment, and the next sentence, or maybe even the same sentence, we're going to contradict ourselves. Because I, I, I in this particular context, now there there are contexts where quote unquote truths are important, but in the context in the context of spiritual growth and enlightenment. What is going to be true for one person is going to be is not going to be true for somebody else. And it's it's not the truth that's important, it's the breaking somebody's mind. It's breaking them out of their shackles of their mind that is important. And so what one person is going to need to hear is going to be something different than what the other person is going to need to hear. Okay? And so one thing I've been saying for a while, I had this realization a couple of years ago, is that truth does not happen in the lips of the speaker. Of course, the kind of truth I'm talking about. Now, there's the kind of truth of like, Donald Trump was just elected president. That's the truth, right? Now, I'm talking about the kind of truth in, in philosophy, right? I mean, you've got, you, you look, look back over, over the philosophers of time and, and many of them contradict each other. And, it, and this is where Osho says, uh, Osho says, uh, the uh, logic is a whore. Because what seems logical, because the mind will latch on to anything. The the mind agree with anything one minute, and then it can agree with the exact opposite the next with just a little bit more information. So, and it's the same thing in consciousness. In consciousness, what's, what's, oh, so what I was saying is that the truth does not happen in the lips of the speaker. It happens in the ears of the listener. So I can, Thousand people, and the 500 was oh my god, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. That's that's totally truth. That's my new truth. And the 500 could say not truth. That's bullshit. I have I have the experience of the exact opposite of that, right? And then the next minute I could say something, and the other half that just said it wasn't true can say that is truth, right? And so, really, what enlightenment is? It's not about it's not about the quest for truth because the more enlightened you get, the more you realize that how relative truth really is. And so this is where understanding comes from. This is where compassion comes from. What we need right now is compassion as a society. It's not about one side's right and the other side's wrong. It's, it's understanding the deeper truth for why one side is, is, is clinging so tightly to one side and to their beliefs and what got them there and then to look at why the other side is clinging so tightly to their beliefs and at the same time we need to come with our own beliefs and like i said we can do that and we can do that by looking towards a spiritual teacher or looking for someone that we see is speaking truth and at some point we're going to soak all the truth from them that that we can and what i say is become forehead to forehead with this person and you've learned all that there is to learn from them. That is when you have to become your own enlightened master, right? So if somebody's look, you know, if somebody's a Buddhist and they're looking to attain enlightenment by becoming the Buddha. At some point, they're going to learn all that there is to learn from their spiritual texts, and they're going to need to look for their own understandings through their own experiences that are unique to their own time periods and their own situations that they're in right now. So mine and Jen's truths and Alex's truth are not truth for everybody. There are going to be occasions where the exact opposite is true because people are on different paths. People will find different paths to enlightenment. And so one person, person's path to enlightenment of going and, and meditating on top of a mountain for 30 years is going to be perfect for some people and it's not going to be perfect for everybody else. That is not my path. My path is to have a wife and three children and to have a life and to have friends and to have a radio show and to go speak on stage. That is my path. and I've used sexuality as my path to enlightenment and I've used my relationship with Jen. As my path to enlightenment, and I've used even before I, before I before I met Jen, I used sleeping around with a lot of women as a path to enlightenment, and that got me to the place where I could then go to the other end of the spectrum right again, that was just one end of the spectrum, having lots of partners now going to the other side of 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 saying, "Look, I've had no partners and I've had a lot of partners and I've had only one partner. what do I choose? I'm not owned by anything I'm not controlled by anything I don't have." the compulsion to do one or the other, I am choosing to have this relationship. And so in order to fully be an enlightened being under my definition, my definition that you can choose to take, or you can choose to have your own definition. My definition is when you're no longer owned by anyone or anything, and you have no compulsions one way or another, you're free from your compulsions and you're free to choose one thing or another. You're free to choose to be the God or to to be the devil. You're free to choose uh, up or down or left or right without needing to do one thing or another. And the way that we learned this was by uh, burning down our life again and again, again and again. So we burned our job to the ground. We burned our, 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 our old lives with our old friends. We just burned it to the ground and all the fear that comes up around Uh, why I need to stay in this relationship and why I need to do this or that and why I I can't say this or I have to say something else. It's all a lie. Have to do anything. And we're, we're at a time right now where people haven't been speaking up or they've been speaking up based on what they thought they knew or what they've been told by their parents and that my side is right and your side is wrong but they haven't seen the bigger picture. And so I, so right now I'm, I'm, in my, I'm in my home in Costa Rica and I'm looking out over my balcony and I'm, I have a view of my pool and I have a view of the entire city. I have an amazing vantage point to be able to see everything as it happens. And this is part of the reason that we felt the need to move out of the U.S. is so that we could have this, this different perspective from outside side of what's happening because we've had the perspective of what what's inside and what our truths are from within and we needed to say okay let's burn this life to the ground and create a new identity as as a couple family that lives in in costa rica and so from here we're able to see entirely new points of view and it's at the point where it's really hard for me it's almost impossible for me to tell who's on what side because they both emerge for me so i'll see a political post and like i saw a video on on breitbart the other day and i was like wait what side is breitbart on are they supposed to be liberal are they supposed to be conservative are they like I, are they what are they and i've seen i've seen so many people uh, praising Breitbart, and I've seen so many people anti Breitbart, and I can't tell which side these people are on, right? And so, this is kind of where I feel like everybody should be is where they can't even tell sides anymore. And, like, who's like, I can't tell who's rioting. Are they Hillary supporters? Are they Bernie supporters? Are they Trump supporters? Are they anti Trump? Who's rioting, and what are they rioting for specifically, right? And so, it this is this is like the inquiry. I think we're at a time right now where we've all pretended to know, and like Alex, like you were saying about the cognitive dissonance that people had, where their picker was off. This is what we, this is what we've called it with relationships. Uh, actually, I think I got this from a friend of mine. Your picker is off. I may have gotten it from my dad or something. I can't even tell. But Jen and I call it your compass. Compass is off. If something happens and you're like, whoa, I didn't see that coming, it's because your compass is a little bit off. And so this is a, a point where people have been so addicted to their point of view as being reality really requires people tuning their compass a little more. And, and, and like your friend said, Alex, uh, get to a place where we understand that maybe we don't have all the answers and that that's where the real answers lie, because that's where we, that's where we stop being owned by opinions, other people's opinions. And we stop being owned by, uh, what other people consider as truth, because you know, I I can get ten messages in one day with ten people giving me different opinions of theirs that they think that I need to live by, and so I I have very few people in my life that I actually choose to live by their very carefully. Alex is one of them. My wife is one of them, and Atia, our, our our business partner, is another one. Right. And it's interesting because all three of of you, Alex, Jen, and Atiyah, often have very different viewpoints. And I like that. I like that you're not all telling me the same thing. And I like that I can see three different perspectives. And even though all three of you are 100% convinced that that you know, you're know you on the right path and, 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 or that your path for me is, is correct and everybody else's path is you know a, a hallucination, I like to think of everybody's path as correct and they're all a hallucination at the same time. So I get to choose... A conglomeration, a conglomerate of of all three of them, and and then I get to make up my own meaning and, and what mean, enlightenment means to me. And, and this is the thing. if you're an enlightened master, you're probably pretty much only going to want to take advice or opinions from other enlightened masters, and even then, you, if you're choosing what enlightenment means to you, you get to choose whether you take them or not you're not required, you're not obligated to take anybody's opinion. And when I see the post on Facebook, right now, like, if if I just look, if I choose a random post, I see children, I see children, I see, I see children that, that, that have their opinion. And they don't understand the opposite opinion, the other side of the spectrum. And I'm seeing people that, that aren't seeing the bigger picture. And I see it as like, oh my God, like, I, I remember when I had that person's truth. I remember when that was my truth a long time ago in my past. And at this point it would be like, you know, taking advice from my three-year-old daughter, she has great advice sometimes about when playtime should be and when family time should be and when we should hang out and when I should pick her up and run around. And she's usually right about all that. I usually really enjoy myself when I, when I take her advice, but there are certain things like when she should eat candy and when she should eat chocolate and when she should go to bed she should eat or not eat, that I, as the adult, need to make the decision. And so right now, those that are the spiritual adults, those have done the work to get where we're at, doesn't mean that we're perfect, doesn't mean that, that we know everything. It just means that I am adult enough to leave my home and cross the street and not use the crosswalk on my own. It means that I, I, as a liberated as somebody who is free, somebody who nobody owns me. My clients don't own me. My investors don't own me. My friends don't own me. Nobody owns me. I am a free man. And all this means is that, you know, like right now, like I've I've got Bella and I'm not going to let her, I'm not going to let my eye off her when we're out in public because it's my job to take care of her. At some point, she will be able to venture out on her own. And this is what... Spiritual adults, and now we've got spiritual adolescents and spiritual teenagers that are trying to figure it all out. And what happens is, at some point, they reach what is what they would consider enough for them. Maybe they're enlightened enough for them. And so, if we look at if we look at the different dimensions, as as Jen and I talk about them, three D, four D, and five D. Three D is where you've got a job, you're working for somebody else. 4D is where you're, you're on life purpose, you've got a business, you're helping people, you're, you're creating something that's never been done before. And 5D is when you stop doing all that. And and 5D, you stop and you create your own dream, whatever that looks like, not based on anybody else's dream ever. And so now you don't have to, so like, you know, people talk about being enlightened master, like that's the end all be all. And once you a- achieve enlightened masterhood, enlightened mastership, then you're done. And you die. You don't have to do anything else. Now, I like to look at it as, as though I would look at me having a job in 3D. Right? So I was a mailman. That was the best job that I ever had in the when I worked, So I got fired from most jobs that I ever had. Probably all of them. <laughs> and this this my my favorite job that I ever had. It was my last job. And I was really good at it. Now, the thing was, I was the best at all of my jobs. But I wasn't the boss. I wasn't an executive. I didn't reach my way up to making millions of dollars, uh, you know, selling insurance or, or owning a brokerage firm or, you know, any of these cool things where you would consider, yep, that person is definitely upper third. That person is graduating the third dimension and they get an A plus and you did it, right? So it's kind of like I went through high school where, you know, I, I kind of coasted my way along. I took easy courses and I got C's. And I passed. So that's how I did third dimension, too. You know, I was great at my job, but I didn't strive for the best job ever. I, I passed, got out of it, and I moved to fourth. And I did pretty damn good in my business, in my, in my coaching practice, in fourth dimension, my fourth dimension coaching practice. And, I, and I'd say I was a, I was a little more uh, attached to that one. So I'd say I got a B plus, A minus on that one. But I still wasn't A plus, and I, I graduated myself, Right. So I think it's the same thing with enlightenment. We get to graduate ourselves when we want to. and it's up to us to decide what I want to. So some people read a couple spiritual texts, they find happiness in their life, and they say, "Cool, I'm on to other things." And for some people, they say they, sp- they find this spiritual text, and they say, "This is amazing. I need to do this more." Then they, they let go of that one, and they find more. and it's, a, it's, a, it's their life path. So it's not all of our life path to be the most enlightened being on the planet. But it is others of our life path to be the most enlightened beings on the, on the planet. And so I, I'm seeing a lot of opinions that people are having that stopped the enlightenment path at some point and said, we'll never be enlightened. And you can never be enlightened because what is enlightenment? Because they stopped the path at some point, and, and that's fine for them. But it can't become an absolute truth. That is where, that is where the enlightenment dies. So by saying you can't be Enlightenment, you're actually killing Enlightenment for yourself. I'm not going to buy into I can't be Enlightened, <laughs> right? I'm gonna, I'm, what, what my point of view is, and I hope it's helpful for everybody, is and I want to hear your opinion, Alex. My point of view is I was born Enlightened. I was born free. Now, of course, I couldn't move in my physical body. I wasn't free in my physical body, but my mind was free. My mind was completely empty i had I had nobody else's thoughts opinions beliefs and and then what happened is people dumped all their beliefs on me and then i and then i I've been carrying around their beliefs and so so in my in my humble opinion, my path to enlightenment has been emptying out my mind of everybody else's opinions and everything that I thought I know, so that then I could co- connect new collect new ones and in collecting these new ones, my only uh, my biggest qualification is, is this expansive to me? Does this feel expansive or does this feel contractive? And oftentimes, most people's opinions feel contractive. So um, anyway, Alex Lightman, can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I hear you. I've heard, I heard everything you said. Yeah. Great. Awesome. All right. What do you think?
0: And, and what's your definition of enlightenment?
1: Well, my experience of enlightenment is what I have. I, if I have to give a definition, then it becomes dry and more like literature. And so when people talk about enlightenment, they mean a way of being that, uh, that uh, is visibly more advanced, evolved, evolved and uh, free of the normal ability for your emotions to take charge of you. So the people in some of the ancient Hindu texts talk about the mind as being a team of wild horses that take you dragging into all directions. (laughs) And so I guess the first part is that your mind is not going to go in directions that you don't consciously want or is not there as part of your your choice. So, So for instance, I know people who say, oh, don't, you know, I don't want to see scary movies because I think about it afterwards. I actually go see horror movies just because I use it as mental training to then to say, okay, now I'm consciously not going to think about it again. And I know that if I I have images that are persisting, that I'm not in a state of enlightenment. Uh, The Germans have a word called Ohrwurm; It means earworm. And that is when you have a piece of music or something playing in your head over and over, and you're not able to do it. That's actually not... Being in a state of enlightenment because you're you're having things bubble up from your unconscious. So th- I think uh, this is my it's not a definition, but it's but it's two explanations. One is that I my experience is that when people can't stop talking, or they're constantly getting triggered into into anger or madness. Like I I, I, I mediated recently between a father and a son who were screaming at each other. And I noticed that one of them um, said, I'm stupid. I'm the stupidest person in the world. And he just built himself into a rage, sort of like the guy in Fight Club punching himself. So he kept on insulting Mm -hmm. it. And I I could just see the split in his consciousness that one part of him was calling himself names just as a kind of a rhetorical technique. But there was another part of his brain that didn't realize it was him calling himself. And so he was reacting in the call as if the other uh, as if the other person was saying it to him. Oh, and so he's getting yeah. madder and madder because he he booted himself like an auto boot in a computer into fury. And I guess that's a technique um, that he learned in his life to do it. But that's not enlightenment. So my <laughs> experience of enlightenment with, uh, with Papaji was that um, I said, look, I've been here for a while. I, I see all these people going at the Tikana, you know, talking and laughing and, and drinking bang lassis. So you could drink bang lassis, and bong are pot milkshakes. And, and it was, you know, it's like it's illegal. You just go there and you just have – you just get stoned on these, nice. pot, uh, these pot milkshakes. And I, was, I wasn't there for that. And I said, so I want to have the direct experience of enlightenment. And so Papaji said – started taking me through a sequence – and this was a long time ago, and he says, okay, so um, what?" he started talking about space, like there's a space in the room. And then he was talking about how what happens when people have a lot of money. They, they build palaces and mansions, and why? Because they can have more and more space. So what he took me through was this process, which I'll just summarize very quickly. I'll take a one-hour process and do it in less than a minute, where he said, so the more wealthy people are, the more and more they create empty space around them. For instance, if you have a big estate with lots and lots of acres and you make gardens, what you're doing is you're actually making it so that what could be space occupied by other people or buildings is in fact occupied by nothing. Because the ultimate luxury, if you have uh, m- enough money to do anything, is to have nothingness. And similarly, lighten- enlightenment is diving into the nothingness. And he said, now, there's, now imagine that there's nothing." right? This is, you know, uh, there's nothing like you're in space and there's nothing there. And I know because I've studied these things that the average density of space is one atom, which is really tiny per cubic meter of space. So the vast, 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 vast majority is empty space, Ninety nine point nine 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 percent empty. And, you know, like having something is very, very rare. And also, 99.99% of matter is in the form not of solid, not liquid, not gas, but of plasma. It's basically like on fire, like a fire itself is on fire. You know, it's it's just not the normal state of matter. So, the to realize that there's nothing here, and that there's never been anything here because nothing can come out of nothing, and that there never you know there never was or will be anything, and to basically imagine that there's absolutely nothing never was never will be just the complete emptiness and now recognize the miracle that there's something here recognize that there's anything at all even one atom that one atom exists is a miracle now imagine that you know that there's lots of atoms around now imagine it's it's like that you're here and you're able to perceive it and so what happened to me in that moment when he took me through that process was really getting because I could, he had the ability to fill my consciousness and like, you know, I guess transfer his consciousness and make me feel this vast spaciousness inside of him because he really, he was the real deal. And I realized how, what an incredible miracle that anything exists at all. And then a miracle on top of a miracle that life exists and then a miracle that earth exists, and then a miracle that I exist on earth. And so it's like miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle on top of miracle. And I and I was in this state where I just had, had such deep appreciation and love and gratitude. And it lasted for probably about 20 hours because foolishly and stupidly, instead of like, you know, chilling out and enjoying this heaven on earth feeling – I took a train from Lucknow to Gorakhpur, and the train, I think it was supposed to, the train car was supposed to have 80 people, and it had, like, 320 people all shoved together. And my girlfriend was with me, and, you know, guys were pinching her ass on the train, and she was crying, and and I was still in this state of, like, blissful nirvana. But, you know, eventually I noticed, like, my surroundings, like, oh, shit, I'm in, like, a concentration camp car. You know i mean i'm in the worst circumstances of my whole life and i've been blissing out for like six hours but this is actually no fun at all and so it kind of you know took me out of it so i know and, I, and i've never really had it again i never went back to see papaji he's he's died i never i never went and found a guru but i know from that experience that the sense of enlightenment i know what it is i've had that taste and it's lasted me it's like this well that i can drink from and be have my thirst quenched very 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 well i know that that's there i also know that i want that i'm here to explore the material world to to write books yeah. to speak to do these things but to know that that i've never lost the sense that this is all the incredible miracle and that really that parallel to this existence is this Reality where there's nothing, nothing at all, never was, and never will be.
0: Wow, that's so cool. That's so fascinating. Do you want to hear my enlightenment
1: story? Well, it leads to, it. It sure. I, I wanted to say two things real quick. One is that this leads you to have the sense of objectivity and detachment because I don't get, I don't buy into the same drama that other people buy into because I realize what a miracle it all is like mm-hmm. the miracle is that existence is here. And that, you know, that the fact that somebody, if somebody doesn't like who's the president or who's their Senator or what the tax situation is, you know, or immigration or whatever, whatever pushes your buttons, that it's all good existence. Like there's something here. And the second thing is, um, right. I, I think about this talk by Neil Strauss at Dave Asprey's bulletproof biohacking conference, And I was wondering, because he wasn't really a biohacker, what the hell Neil Strauss was doing as a keynote speaker. He just seemed like the odd duck among all these people talking about how to have your diet and your exercise and your food and be bulletproof and have your coffee with butter and coconut oil and all that. (laughs) But he said something that's really resonated with me more than anything anybody else said. And he said, amidst all these things talking about how your parents screwed you up, and dating screws you up, and sex screws you up, and all this. He says the real goal of having relationships and having this and going through all these experiences, which he diagrammed out, is to not have any buttons left to push. In other right. words, somebody can try really hard to get you happy or mad or trigger you, and it just doesn't work. You know, it has. It's it's as if like you go to Halloween horror nights at Universal Studios and a monster comes up and goes rah. And the first time that happens, you're like, oh, my God, that's so scary. And then they get you a couple more times. But pretty much, you it's like, yeah, that's nice. I see you minimum wage monster, you know, trying to scare me. I re- see what's happening. And you, they don't get lost in, oh, my God, there's a werewolf trying to rip my throat out. And there's not a vampire trying to drink my blood, you know. And there's not this guy who's going to torture me and burn me. And, and you just don't – just let it go. And so I think that, that to some extent – that life is like Universal Hollywood Horror Nights, that all kinds of people are trying to trigger you into fear and uncertainty and doubt. They're fudcasting. I love the word fudcasting because it just says what people are trying to do. And you see what the media tried to do over the past year is to send anybody into this absolute panic. And people are posting on Facebook like these people saying Trump has zero chance or he has 1% chance. And it's just, it's hilarious how they were trying to create this this uh, reality that fit their picture of what their corporate masters, you know, six companies control the top 1000 media and stuff. They're just somebody made or said, here's how to create a, go create a virtual reality that everybody's in. And so the idea is if you recognize that people are trying to create virtual realities and then get you so emotional that you don't realize you're in a virtual reality, I guess enlightenment is the, is the God mode where you realize that you are in a, in a game and that the same rules don't apply to you. And that if this gets back to where I'm going to say yes to what you're saying, that you can think your own thoughts and you have the ability to, you're responsible. And I posted yesterday, what's the best advice you ever got? And there was one thing, Every uh, there were like 150 different things, but there was one thing that was repeated that multiple people said was the best advice they ever got. And you know what that was? The one thing that, that people repeated and everything else was not repeated and that is respond. Don't react. And, good. Then, and, what, and, and the way that this is put in three words is stimulus, pause, response, or you, know, you, you, you hear something and then you, you, you take a breath, two breaths, three good. breaths. And I guess those people who consciously make a habit like you could look at two twins, the twin studies. I love twin studies, and mm, like yeah. the, the, you know one twin runs and the other twin doesn't, or one is raised in a positive loving household and the other is you know goes goes through a bunch of foster homes. I mean or we one sort of know how to turn out. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you have if you have one habit in life, if you pause when somebody says something, you first of all you recognize someone's trying to push a button. And then you pause and you take three to 10 deep breaths and then you smile as you, you know, while you're reflecting on it and you just choose how you respond. You have a vastly different life. You're easier to work with. You're easier to be a, a mate. You're easier to have on your team. You're, you're you're more productive. I just think that it's the pause that refreshes and renews somebody at the soul level. And then we, we have a practice of our show where we say that there are three things people should do. Normally we have another guest and we ask them what are three things we should do. But I guess if we want to have something that from the show, you know, the future of the quest for spiritual truth, uh, I have my three. Seek the truth, speak the truth, and practice what you preach. However, I would add to that that whenever notice what triggers you, Notice when people are trying to trigger you and then just take a pause and take a nice, deep, healthy, fun breath and then choose your response from the, the menu. Um, and, then, and then you'll have what a friend of mine said, the life you've ordered has arrived.
0: That's good. And I, I, love, that, so, I love that you say choose your response. Not just respond, yeah. but choose respond there are a thousand responses could be
1: so you had said uh you were going to share your story of enlightenment. I'm all ears, please tell us
0: great yeah so and and you know it wasn't it, it, this wasn't just, it wasn't just one experience that and there never was more it was it wasn't like one experience and now I'm enlightened forever it, it it's like. It, I call it, I call it my levels of top security clearance. Like I've been, I've been giving, given higher levels of top security clearance. Right. And so when I was about 25, I, I left my fiance that I talked about earlier and I moved to Florida to try to get on a boat to the Bahamas. And I didn't have, I had no plan, not, a, not a single plan. And so I ended up uh, bouncing at a strip club for a while I, I, I answered a I I, I saw an uh, article in the paper about the strip club that had just gotten shot up. Three of the bouncers had just gotten shot. And so I, I, I was like, Oh, cool. I see an opportunity. And so I showed up and I said, I hear you're looking for bouncers. And so they hired me. And so I stayed there for a while And as I was trying to figure out my next steps as I was putting in applications to get on a boat. And, at one point, I was like, "Okay, I don't want to do this anymore. This isn't why I'm here. I don't want to get. You know, it, was, it was too much." And so I spent the last of my money. Uh, my my motorcycle broke down on, on my on my way to. I was going from Florida to Canada. My motorcycle broke down the day of the day I was going to leave. So I, I bought a bus ticket. Spent the last of my money on a, my cash on a bus ticket, and I had about actually I had about sixty dollars worth of ones in my pocket. And so by the time I got to uh, Canada, they wouldn't let me in because I didn't have en- enough money. And so I didn't have enough money to get home. All I had enough, I had enough on my credit card, maxed out my credit card with a bus ticket back to New York. And so I slept on the streets in New York for uh, for about a week. And that was an enlightenment experience. And all my friends and family wanted to give me money to send me home. And I said, no, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I've got, I've got nothing to do. I've got nowhere to be. I've got nothing on my schedule. I've got no possessions. I've got, I've got no responsibilities. I've got nothing. And so I just laid in the, in the park and, and read books. I laid in central park and I, I, I would climb a, a scaffolding on the side of a, a church side of a building and go sleep 30 stories up overlooking, um, Uh, Times Square. And it was just it was a seriously freeing experience. And that is where I, I got over my fear of anything, I I was no longer afraid. Uh, You know, every, everybody's worst fear is, is losing everything, becoming homeless, and, you know, getting getting sick and dying, or whatever. And so I got there, and I realized how freeing it really was being homeless, <laughs> having nothing. And so that changed me forever because just before that, I, 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 I had a, a business, a video production company that I was trying to make successful, and it just wasn't working. And so I had these big dreams of making money and, and all this. And so this was the other side of the spectrum of just accepting defeat and just surrendering to it and 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 not letting anyone bail me out either, just being in it. And so that was, that was my first really big experience. And, and then I had to integrate back into uh, life and society. And then you know, I've, I've had a few more since then. Obviously, another one was when I met Jen. Uh, that was, I think, my next big one was when I met Jen and everything in my, my life fell apart again. And I think that's, that's a, a prerequisite for enlightenment is, is life falls apart. And one thing Jen said the other day is she said, There's almost there's a very only a subtle difference in having a nervous breakdown and becoming enlightened because it's all about losing your mind. It's all about losing everything that that you thought you knew. So when I met Jen, I lost my mind. We became crazy people. We didn't know which way was up, which way was down. Everything that we thought we knew fell out the window. Everyone was convinced that we had lost our minds and, you know, we quit our jobs and started the business and, and it was insanity. And we felt like we were high the whole time. We felt like, we felt like reality, like, like we were outside of reality. We were outside, you know, we were outside of what our family wanted us to do and what our friends thought we should do. And everyone thought we, we were insane. Everything, everyone thought we had lost it. And we said, no, there was a higher force guiding us. I know what I'm doing. And even if it doesn't make any sense and nobody else understands it, I know what I'm doing. And that, that is, is when you're tapped into higher self and when it doesn't make any sense. And, and then, and then my most recent enlightenment experience was about two years ago when we were, we were doing business our 4d way and we were doing it the ways that all of our business coaches told us to do it. And, and we were trying to, you know, get that A plus in, in the fourth dimension, and you know, it, it's it's like it says in the Tao. It says stop before the glass is full. Don't bend the bow till it breaks. Don't sharpen your sword and, until it, you know, is so sharp that it, it dulls easily, right? And so we had a we had a breakdown. We lost all of our money. We lost all of our clients. Uh, we couldn't make rent, and you know, our rent was five thousand dollars at the time, and we couldn't even make we couldn't make rent and and then, you know, so we felt like we were on mushrooms. Like we felt like, oh my God, my world is falling apart. This should have worked. And we just like, we just laid there on the ground and laughed hysterically for days, for days as we allowed our uh, reality to kind of realign itself. And we had one woman that came in and she, she uh, you know, after all this and we're like, okay, well, let's go make some money now. And then our next client came in wrote us a check for $20,000 and we're like, well, that was easy. And and we, we I deposited my check, and I got a message from her the next morning, and she said, actually, I stopped the check. I don't want to work with you anymore. Boom, we were right back in it, right? It was that enlightenment experience all over again. And so that's when we said, okay, we literally can't do anything the old way. We have to figure out a new way. And this is where 5D Business School was born. It, it was a new way of doing business that was uh, that was using uh, enlightenment or using your business as an enlightened uh, feedback mechanism for enlightenment. Right. And so I, I actually, I heard a story yesterday. <laughs> uh, I forget the, the guy's name. It was, it was a, a guru an enlightened master. And he was telling a story about, he said, I was in the market and I was, I, I met a man uh, selling fruits and vegetables and I, I could tell he was enlightened. And so I, I started talking to with him and he said, what happened to him was he, Got really sick, a life life threatening illness, and, and he was going to die, and so he was in the hospital for a long, long time while he was dying. And at some point, he became enlightened, and the illness left, and now he's he's enlightened. So he said, "Yeah, now I I sell people fruits and vegetables, and and every person I give the blessing of a long term illness."
1: <laughs>
0: so anyway, there's there's all kinds of different enlightenment experiences, and 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 ours have, have, have tended to come through hardships and, and most most people's have, right? Have tended to come through hardships and and you know, one thing we heard Osho talking about is that there are two ways that, that you can that one reaches enlightenment. One way is snap your fingers, instant enlightenment, everything changes overnight. And that's how it happened with him, right? He was doing a you know, he had a strict regimen of you know, waking up in the morning at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever and doing yoga and fasting and eating healthy and, and, and doing his meditations. And, and then all, all of a sudden, one day he woke up and he was enlightened. And that was it. And that, was, that has not been our experience. Our experience has been one experience after another, after another. And each level, we, we reach a new level of understanding that completely negates everything that we knew in the the tier before that, in the stage before that. And so this is where somebody gets enlightened enough to know that they don't know anything because there's always more, right? And, you know, you can be more and and to to have that understanding requires being more enlightened than 99% of the the population, right? Including those that, that say they're enlightened. And so it's, it's such an, it's such a freeing thing, understanding that you know nothing and at the same time, you know everything that you need to know to get you to that next state, to get you to the next stage of the, the next level of your top security clearance. And so anyway, that's my experience. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to do it without more pain. Um, and it, the, the pain gets easier for us. You know, we, we talk what, about
1: What it. pain are you referring to? The confusion?
0: Uh, the, the, yeah, the confusion, the pain of having something fall apart. Right The pain of losing everything, the pain of uh, you know having all of our clients leave you that know, what happened last time uh, and, and and you know and then you reach you reach the next level within a, a day or two and and so at this point I, I'm not concerned of how it comes. you know we've been talking about preemptive evolution versus uh, forced evolution. Preemptive evolution is like where you know you need to leave this relationship or you know you need to lose your job but you don't do it. Until years later, now you're miserable. Now you're at a breaking point. Now you're depressed or your, your partner hits you or something. And now it's forced evolution. Now you have to leave, but you're not really prepared for it because it happened for you rather than you creating it for yourself. At this point, I don't really care if forced evolution or, or evolution happens. I just want evolution to continue happening however it happens because I'm, I'm at a point where I realize that I can have the worst thing in the world happen to me and I'm going to grow from it. You know, I'm 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 the uh, what, what was that dragon that you said? Uh, the hydra. I'm the hydra. You can cut off my head. I'll grow two more. Cut off my head. Oh, the take hydra.
1: You mean the creature that you cut off one head and two will take its place? Exactly. Is that what you mean? How, yeah. how, how are you the hydra? Uh, cause in, in, you know,
0: this is this is where like this is my definition of enlightenment is where, where you're untouchable. And where nothing can take you down, nothing can take you out. You're not owned by anything. And so if somebody if somebody uh, cuts off my head, right, if, or if something cuts off my head, if a situation cuts off my head, and, you know, usually, or in the past, I, I, you know, do what most people do. Oh, poor me. What happened to me? Oh, my God, you're to blame for this. I'm blaming you, <laughs> right, for, for what's happened to me, you know, like that's cutting off your head and then like falling over and bleeding out and dying. And so at this point, you know, somebody can do something or cut off my head or, uh, you know, write a scathing post about me or, or something and, and I can smile and understand that this is just going to make me stronger. I'm gaining new insights. And and, and this is the difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? No, knowledge is is just knowledge. Anyone can get knowledge from a book, but It's not until you experience that knowledge in action that we get wisdom. And that's where it becomes integrated. It's when I've experienced something. So at this point, I know that I can have the knowledge that nobody owns me. I can have the understanding that I'm free and and that I'm enlightened and that, that, that nobody can take me out. But then once the situation happens, then you're put to the test. That's where the test presents itself and you either pass the test and gain wisdom or you collapse and, and, and lose the wisdom and, and, and play it wrong. So anyway, my definition.
1: So Ben, what are your three uh, suggestions that, you know, I gave two sets of three for me. How about if you give two sets of three related three suggestions for people who want to go further in their own uh, search for, for enlightenment and spiritual truth.
0: Great. Uh, yeah. So I'll say uh, first rule is no sorries. Second rule is no, I knows. Uh, actually, I'm going to say it in a different order. First rule, no, no, I'm sorry. Don't say I'm sorry. I don't want anyone to say I'm sorry to me because everyone's on their path. Uh, second, second is no, I don't knows because we all, we all know, you know, we just have to, you know, it's like, it's like the response thing you just said. Um, of uh, stimulus, pause, respond. Right? It's like we all have the information inside of us. If I ask someone, "What do you want?" They say, "I don't know." They're they're cutting it off. Right? They're saying, "I don't know." They're giving away their power, rather than tapping in. And and if I say, "What do you want?" And they stop, close their eyes, take a deep breath, smile, and say what they want. Right? Um, and then the other piece is, no, I don't. Uh, no, I knows. <laughs> So there's no, I don't know's, but also no, I know's like, stop pretending, you know, Um, you know, learn something new. And then, you know, a few more would be just take, take 100%. Thou, if I'm doing my 10 commandments, right. Thou shalt take 100% responsibility for everything everywhere. And, you know, like I've said before, like I, I, I like to take responsibility for the weather in California. I'll take responsibility for the drought in California. I'll take responsibility for children starving in, in, in Africa. Right. And, and this is, this is, this is true power is, is, you know, nothing that's outside of my reach. This is my dream. This is my dream. If I can do anything, I'm going to take responsibility for everything. And I'm at some point going to, you know, do my part for everything. Uh, I think uh, another step would be to dream a bigger dream, Dream a bigger dream. Stop saying I can't uh, act on your intuitions. Um and that's that's good for now. I've, I've got I've got more, but I think I think that's like if 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 people could actually reach so, those and live those, they would they would feel enlightened. They would feel happiness and joy inside.
1: So your your reaction to if you're on a spiritual truth, you've you've mentioned in many private phone calls, and you mentioned in the show today the difference between having a family and being on spiritual on a mountaintop. What do you think the role uh-huh. in the search for spiritual truth that keeping a journal is um, what do you think the role of speaking like getting up in front of groups and speaking is and what do you think the role of having a family is in the in the search for spiritual truth how Ooh, do each of those things great. help us with that this
0: is great thank you so when Jen and I Jen and I were talking this morning and every morning we wake up and we tell each other how grateful we are for each other and every night before we go to bed and probably Twenty times through the day, talk about how grateful we are for each other, and in this journey where we're breaking all the constructs of reality, as other people have put them, set them up, it's easy to question ourselves, and it's easy to think we're insane. And so, so to, so she said, it's, just, it's so much easier this way, having having a partner, to, you know, anytime she thinks she's insane. I remind her she's perfect. I, I show her the, the picture as I see it. And I remind her of the path she's on and that I I, I give her my approval and say, keep doing what you're doing, baby. Just, you know, pat her on, pat her on the butt and, and, and tell her to keep doing what she's doing. And she gets to do the same thing for me. And, or, or else, you know, we give each other mild adjustments and say, you're perfect, go ahead, right? And she said, it's so much easier this way. And it is easier in some ways, being able to, uh, like like you mentioned, what Neil Strauss said, right, about using your tr- triggers, using people that are triggering you, and finding enlightenment through that, right, my kids have taught me how to be patient, they taught me how to relax, they've taught me how to be kind, they've taught me how to play again, I forgot how to play, my kids are teaching me how to, how to be enlightened, my business teaches me how to be enlightened, right, everything that happens in my business, I get to look at it and, and decide how I want to respond, and Using everything as a feedback mechanism. Now, at the same time, that also, you know, as we're, we're in the public, we're becoming enlightened masters in the public eye, which has its pluses and it also has its minuses. So, at the beginning, the pluses are you've got feedback from people who are defining you, and so it's almost like a, a smoke screen, right? If somebody's releasing smoke around an object that that has no form. That, that appears to be formless, but the smoke kind of goes around the object. Like this is, this is how I see people's perceptions of me. It's, 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 they're, it's not me that they're creating with their words. It's just their perception of me, right? It's the outline of me. And so once I have that, I, I can't keep letting people blow smoke at me. Now I get to go find myself. Who am I to me? I know who everyone else thinks I am and, and who the mirror is. Right. And so if I were to look at, uh, an enlightened master that went up onto a mountaintop and had no mirrors and was in themselves and and dealing with their own demons. And like these people got to create who they are. They didn't have other people to create who they were for them. And that's lonely. And that comes with its own. uh, It comes with its own experience of, I mean, being, being in in solitary confinement is the worst torture you can do to somebody. And be, you know, being in meditation is often the hardest thing for people being in that, that isolation. Right. And so when you're, if you, let's say you're born on a mountain. You know, I never cave.
1: thought about that, that you just explained to me why meditation is so hard is it's a form of solitary confinement. Have, did you just make that up just now on the spot? <laughs> it just came through. Have me, you yeah. said that before? No, really?
0: I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you like it. So
1: you, oh no, you. it's it's profound. It's like I wonder why more people don't meditate because meditation is that a longer version of that stimulus pause response, but it's to like your whole day or your whole week or your whole life. And why don't right. more people do it? And the answer is because it's yeah, painful well, because it's right. like solitary confinement. <laughs> wow, amazing! Yeah. So so this is thank,
0: was, you. This thank, was thank was you for um, that.
1: That's a that's yeah, a that's a juicy you. bit.
0: Oh great! Uh, so you know Jen is so good at being in solitary confinement because she's an introvert for me, being in meditation is, is torture because I like being around people. I like talking with people. I'm a people person. I love people. Um, So anyway, so if you can imagine a, somebody that's born on the mountaintop and born in a cave and, and now they're an enlightened master, they don't have, they, they weren't, instilled with the perception of what other people think about them and you know it's almost like if if you did, did they weren't even born with a mirror they weren't raised with a mirror and you can't even look inside a mirror to see what you look like physically right and so now that is that is one way of being enlightened And so the the other way is the way and it looks like we've got 90 seconds until uh the feed cuts off for everybody that's listening right now but just know that Alex and I are going to keep talking and and it will be recorded. It will come through when you listen to the recording. So um, we love you. Thanks for sticking with us this long. Um, So, yeah. So as far as journaling goes, you know, we have, that's a practice that we have people do and it, it, it helps people uh, anchor, helps people anchor into the third dimension, into reality, the thoughts that they're having. And it's also, it's it's also, so I use Facebook. I use writing on Facebook and I know you do too, Alex, and, and Quora and, and all these different uh, places that you write in. I use these as my, as my journal. And sometimes I'll, and it, so every Facebook post that I write, I write in, in notepad on my phone. Jen and I both, everything we write, all of our books and courses, we write on our phones. It's just easier for some reason. And so I, I write it on notepad and sometimes I'll choose to post it and sometimes I'll, sometimes I won't post it. And, but I don't write my, I don't write Facebook posts for other people. I write them for me. I write it for my own curiosity. And, and so I write it kind of as a journal and it helps me, it helps me flesh out my thoughts. It helps me figure out what it is I'm really thinking. And I'll just, like when I feel, in, and I know you do the same thing. I can see it in your writing. You, you, you'll write this huge post. And I know you don't sit down with all these thoughts in your mind. Oh, I've got to put down, lay this out step by step. You sit down with an intention of creating this structure, and then it populates itself when you channel it. And so – so Well, know, yeah, we and there's
1: many have... questions that I don't know what I'm going to say until I say it. Exactly. Yeah,
0: that's how yourself come through. So did I miss the question? It looks like we've got 20 seconds left. Oh, no, we've actually – Time well, is off on I
1: guess well, uh, I could say thank you very much for the show. Uh, this is a, I love that you use the show to do what you would like to, to talk about. Um, so what would you like to talk about next week? I want to do uh, what uh, you said one of about the things- going over people's best pieces
0: of advice. I think that's genius. And I think I want to okay, have, I want my so, own first
1: step. Okay. So yesterday I asked, um, after seeing it on the uh, the wall of speaker James Malinchek uh, he asked, what was the best advice you ever get? And I thought uh, I gave him credit and said, okay, yeah, what is that? And that is the, the greatest outpouring of response that I've gotten in a while. So people really like to share the best advice they've gotten. And it reminds me of sort of a best practices from my friend David Orban, who, who asks on his business card, what is the question I should be asking? I think that the best mm-hmm. advice thing is, yeah. is one of those things. It's, it's actually pretty, pretty useful. So, yeah, all right. So next week is the future of the best advice you ever got.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh,
1: <laughs> the, the future of advice. <laughs> okay, oh, the future oh. of advice. Wonderful. <laughs> so I'll, I will uh, talk to you then. Thank you. for uh, If you're a listener, thank you very much. We really appreciate um, your thoughts. Feel free to interact with us on our Facebook page or on Ben Rohde's Facebook page or Alex Lightman' Facebook page. Thanks very much. Have a good week.
0: Love you all. Bye.